0: The Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of The Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by Hamil Hussein, a staff machine learning engineer over at GitHub. Uh, welcome to the show, Hamil. It's awesome to have you on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: I think one of the cool topics to start with is, before we get into what you're working on now, how did you get where you got? What Where have you been before GitHub?
1: Okay. Oh, that's a really good question. It's kind of been an interesting journey. I've been working in data science kind of off and on and through kind of some interesting phases. So uh, when I graduated from college a long time ago, my first job was working for a bank doing credit risk modeling. Um, And I did that for about a year. That involved predictive modeling back then. And then I did management consulting for a while, uh, for about four years. And then I took a little bit of a hiatus, took a break, sort of switched careers for a bit. I went into law. And then I went, came, dropped, I stopped that. Then I came back to data science and then did some consulting again. Then I went uh, into the startup world. So then I uh, went to go work at Data Robot. Um, after that, I went to go work at Airbnb. And then now I'm at GitHub. And so that's kind of, yeah, high level sort of my journey.
0: Dude, I don't know how I didn't know that about you, about getting into law and coming back. I mean, one of the, we'll, we'll get back to that. But one of the things I'm curious about. Is your careers kind of predates machine learning as a popular field of study? For audience that may, you know, be new to the topic or be vaguely aware of it, how recent was its ascendancy and, and popularization and like how how did you witness it in the in the business marketplace and, and your career decision making?
1: Yeah, I mean, I always knew that data was going to be something of lots of value. Um, When I first, sort of my first job that I talked about doing credit risk modeling, it definitely wasn't called machine learning. That term wasn't something that was sort of in wide use um, in industry back then. I mean, you know, using like logistic linear regression, things like that, um, decision trees, for building these credit risk models and banks nothing nothing really fancy in terms of algorithms but certainly qualifies as machine learning um, but you know that word didn't really wasn't really in the lexicon um, I would say it was somewhere I feel like in 2009 2010 where I really started to see sort of this, um, this field develop And sort of this intersection between computer science and statistics and all that stuff uh, that, you know, we're familiar with today um, to, you know, kind of sort of have this new field uh, that you asked me about sort of emerge. And I think that's where I kind of uh, saw it. Um, And that kind of sort of when I was in law uh, doing that, I thought, you know, that's really interesting. I, you know, maybe I'll go check it out, um, <laughs> see what I'm missing out on.
0: Let's, and let's,
1: that's sort of what I did.
0: Let's dial back a second because I want to I hear about how you got into law.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the short story is, you know, law school tends to be um, for people that sometimes a pot it's a popular place for people. Where they don't know what they want to do in life, um, and so I was—I just had a phase in my life where I—I I hadn't really explored much prior to in college or prior to college. I was, you know, I kind of stayed on this path of these like very quantitative technical fields, and I just—I I just wanted to try something new, and I had no idea. I wasn't sure, like. This is what I wanted to do in life. But what I learned in law school is it really sucks to do something that you don't like. Um, you know, I, I actually didn't know what I what wanted to do or didn't like or didn't want to do. Um, and sort of, I just needed to try something. And that was my very expensive and time-consuming way of doing that, I suppose.
0: I I, I totally get it. Um, I mean, I, the expensive part, especially, I mean, not just factoring the tuition, but the time out of the job market. Um, This is a decision I've talked about on the show before previously was, I wasn't an engineer out of, out of college immediately. I worked in a totally unrelated field, quit that job and was looking at doing master's programs. And man, yeah, post- undergrad is so, it's, it's, I mean, you could say undergrad is very expensive depending on if you're A, American, B, you go to a public or private university, but something is more real once you're out of college and in the job market and are considering foregoing a salary. So totally heard on the expensive part. Uh, <laughs> but no, that's so, that's so interesting that you, that you made the career change into law and then back from law. And where were you? What what, were, what was going on that uh, led you back out of law and into software engineering, data science, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I mean, so when I graduated from law school, it's actually a pretty tough time. It was 2010, so it was right, coming off the heels of the, the last recession. And so, you know, things weren't that great uh, in that market. And uh, I found this consulting role where it was kind of, you know, legal consulting um, that had a lot of data components to it. And when I joined the consulting firm, slowly just drifted to doing things that are not legal at all and just data science. And then, you know, more and more just software engineering. Um, and then I just eventually just just dropped it completely. It's more organically drifted away from it. But... Organically meaning very fast. I would say (laughs) um, it only took me six months to completely, you know, stop doing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, that's how it happened.
0: I'd say that's definitely an accidental engineer story. That's shocking to hear. (laughs) Well, for our audience that are curious about what you're up to now, um, as a machine learning engineer at GitHub, People probably have heard I mean, a lot of publicity out there about GitHub and recent events like being acquired by Microsoft, um, probably doing a lot of partnerships with Azure. Um, but a lot of our audience are probably most familiar with GitHub from hosting their Git repos there. Uh, you've published a lot of very awesome public research about your work uh, since joining GitHub. But for audience that don't know, what types of research do you do? Yeah,
1: so um, GitHub is really a really cool place in the sense that a lot of the data um, that you can see on GitHub is public and open, and it's comprised of a lot of text. Um, there's code and there's natural language in the forms of people's comments, uh, of course, the code that they're writing, the comments in that code, um, and then there's pull re- pull requests with comments in there, and a lot of interactions going on in GitHub. So, it's a really rich place for natural language processing, sort of trying to study and, um, you know, obtain value from this uh, kind of written language and a discourse between uh, different people in GitHub. Mm -hmm. And um, the really interesting part about that is uh, from time to time, we can share an end-to-end example um, with the data and the code and the results which is really hard to do in industry. Um, I would say, you know, most of the time, if you're working in industry, um, you can't really, it's really difficult to share the data that you're working with, with, that, with out, outside. So, um, you know, often you'll see blog posts with, with really, that look, that look really interesting, um, that sort of sh- kind of visualize certain techniques or say that accomplish certain things, but it's hard to reproduce that. So it can be hard to learn from that. Um, so that's the, that's one thing that's really, really cool. is like, we can really share a lot of that stuff cause it's public anyways.
0: Got it. Got it. So what are some specific examples of research that you've published?
1: Yeah. So, um, mostly in the form of blog posts. So, um, a couple of ones that come to mind are something that can summarize GitHub issues as one of my first ones. So, um, you know, GitHub issues are sort of where you go to, uh, you know, discuss something that might be wrong with code, or you want to file a problem, and usually have a title, you a know, in some sort of comment field and body. Um, and so, you have this massive corpus on GitHub of a bunch of issue titles and issue comments, and you can train models that, given a body, try to generate the title. And... The way that might be useful is if uh, a lot of times people don't put informative titles on their uh, issues and it makes it hard for maintainers to triage those issues um, but then also in the process of trying to um, and when you train the model to try to predict the title from the body of the issue um, you also train the model to uh, along the way extract features from from the text of the issue and so you can reuse that, you can repurpose that uh, for other, other things like predicting what types of tags or labels uh, might be on that issue. So that can further sort of help maintainers by helping them triage issues and identify what buckets or what categories an issue might fall into. Um, because a lot of times people, you know, people don't have time to manually curate these issues and, and organize them. So, so this is where that technology can become applicable
0: there's kind of a meme or cliche about uh, data science blog posts, which is that the majority of the blog post is generally about all of the pre-processing, pre-processing steps for the data. And then the last 20% of the data scientists stereotype blog post is then we fed it into this model and we got these results. Check out how sick these results are. Uh, I, I mean, I think that's probably a fair, A, it's a fair stereotype, but B, it's fairly representative about how time is spent on a data science project like the type you describe, which is uh, you know generating high quality suggestions of uh, issue ticket titles, pull request ticket titles, uh, suggested labels. Uh, is that true? Is 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 that uh, disproportionate amount of time being spent on uh, pre-processing of data? Um, truly disproportionate, like how much of your day-to-day would you spend is on data wrangling versus uh, results? Yeah, yeah that's,
1: a, that's a really good question. I would say only probably like 2% or maybe even 1% of my time is spent on modeling. And then the rest of the time is spent on figuring out, you know, uh, framing the problem and sort of understanding what data might be available, where it might be validating that is correct and then sort of cleaning it, um, understanding sort of it, like really exploring it. And then I would say there's another part about, um, uh, machine learning that maybe doesn't get talked about as often, but something I'm really passionate about is, is sort of the, the DevOps part of machine learning, which is, you know, how do you take this model that you built and then, um, uh, build a process where you can roll that out into your application, uh, in a reliable way, um, and sort of, uh, put it into production, so to speak.
0: This is a perfect segue into our next topic, which is DevOps for machine learning. <laughs> so I know this is something that you're working on of late. Um, can you share with our audience a little bit about what are the interesting solutions maybe in the space? Um, maybe what existed before and what you think will exist in a year or two?
1: Yeah. Um, so today, so just to kind of frame the conversation, so today when we talk about DevOps for machine learning, there really isn't that much of, uh, that That practice really isn't that common. Um, it does exist, but what the typical workflow of a data scientist looks like when they're trying to deploy machine learning system is um, when it, so after all the data wrangling and all of that stuff occurs, usually there's, you know, is very iterative sort of phase where you try maybe your approach, different models. You may be, um, you know, working in a Jupyter notebook or not in a Jupyter notebook. It doesn't matter. Um, but you're not necessarily checking in code. But like after you kind of arrive at a mo- the model you want to put in production, um, you sort of now have to uh, maybe go through a more typical software engineering workflow. And right now, you know, data scientists, for example, they might open a pull request, um, and you know, with their code or maybe changes to their model. Um, or maybe it's a brand new model and, um, you know, people don't have all the context they need in order to know in the pull request whether or not that uh, this should be uh, in production or promoted to production Um, that you would generally get with your traditional software engineering lifecycle where you might have a bunch of different tests that get executed and all the information that context is in the pull request. So that's kind of one of the first steps that are sort of very difficult is a lot of these uh, experiments, tests uh, are done in a different context than code review context. This whole process is hard. And um, there's definitely, you know, I guess machine learning is new enough where uh, there's still tools that can be made, I think to make this process a lot easier. And that's something that's really exciting. I think in the, as we go forward in the future, There'll be more tools for data scientists for the entire workflow, and so um, you know. So I, I, you asked me about the future. I think you know the future really involves frameworks that reduce friction, that make uh, a lot of things a lot easier, um, but also like tools for DevOps that make sort of this process of Deploying to production easier, in a, in a, and also with a lot of transparency. Um, and so that, you know, involves a lot of different a lot of different tools. But I think, um, it, that's what I'm starting to see. And I think that's that's another barrier that data scientists face uh, aside from cleaning and acquiring data uh, when trying to um, obtain value from from their projects.
0: So GitHub Actions got announced, uh, I think, last month. Um, obviously, that's, that'll be a very awesome platform from which to drive DevOps for machine learning. Um, I would guess that what's common in industry now for machine learning DevOps is that um, it's very much not Git-based. <laughs> uh, for audience that aren't familiar with GitOps, GitOps refers to... Uh, Git-driven deployments, so by merging maybe a pull request into a special branch, um, you automatically are promoting that code into production or into a certain environment. So um, I think that I agree with you totally on the future of machine learning delivery being massively simplified. Um, but for one, one case I can think of, that maybe you can speak to, of wanting to deploy a model is that oftentimes models aren't defined by maybe their uh, their code, but rather the weights of certain mechanisms within the model. For example, uh, you might serialize the model as a super large file, which, if you stored it under Git, one it might exhaust your your Git. Uh, <laughs> Uh, file size limitations. But for another, looking at a pull request of a blob of serialized data and the weights of your uh, machine learning model is impossible to interpret. So given that those are there are two components, and correct me if I'm wrong, to a machine learning model, one is your weights, the other is the code of your model. Um, how, how do you see delivery of those two parts of the model being different and whether there's a, a common DevOps solution for both of those?
1: Yeah, so I think there's some really exciting projects out there that uh, really um, sort of accelerate how how realistic or you know how approachable DevOps for machine learning will become. So one exciting project is Kubeflow, and so uh, Kubeflow is a project where it's Basically, machine learning infrastructure on Kubernetes, and um, the paradigm that that technology introduces is: you can deploy uh, any model training run. Um, you can insta- you can train a model, instantiate a training run, ho- uh, serve a model, do all of these things, and you can do that as a, as if though it's a generic. Uh, uh, application you're trying to deploy to kubernetes so just like you deployed a website to kubernetes uh you know know, like a a web app that you you might uh deploy you can do the same thing with machine learning runs and so that's really compelling for uh ci cd workflows because now you can uh sort of define the runtime that your environment that, that your model wants to run in and sort of uh you can define your pipeline in, in a certain way, and you can use the Kubernetes infrastructure to go and run that. And you can do that on the on the compute of your choice, and and take advantage of all the resource management and all of that stuff on Kubernetes. Um, and so I think that makes the CI/CD story easier um, because Kubernetes n- n- sort of this seat uh, c- this the pathway for. CI, CD, and traditional software development kind of follows a similar path. So we're kind of using similar paradigms that that we're used to. Got
0: it. Got it. Speaking to the point earlier that I made that I may be totally off base about because my day-to-day is not machine learning or data science. But uh, as far as how a model is composed, on the one hand, it's the... It's the code evaluating the model on any given uh, sample piece of data. Uh, and on the other hand, is maybe your model weights and perhaps that file being really large. Um, does KubaFlow have, or KubaFlow or other tool, have a way to cope with uh, versioning uh, your model weights as opposed to your training business logic or your model serving business logic?
1: Yeah, so um to answer your question, I don't think Kubeflow necessarily is specifically um Kubeflow is a kind of a general at the moment, kind of an extensible and general sort of framework where a lot of things can fit in if they're running on cloud native. Um however, kind of to get to answer your question about model weights and data and sort of these other artifacts that are created that are not code in the process of machine learning, it's not, I don't think that you're going to see, um, you're not going to be able to fit that in your traditional sort of Git, GitHub paradigm. I think there will be extensions that handle these things. So for example, on the data side, there's a project called Pachyderm, which uh, handles data versioning really well. Um, And then there's a lot of experiment tracking systems that um, capture data about any model run uh, with a really rich logging and allow you to store a lot of artifacts like model weights, model files, so on and so forth. So an example there in the space, an example that we use at GitHub is weights and biases. Um, And so there's a lot of different tools in the tool chain. And if you compose them together in the right way, then you can create um, sort of a a DevOps process um, for machine learning.
0: Got it, got it. I I think one of the uh, problems that our audience might not be thinking about, but that we should definitely direct our attention towards is the fact that it's really hard to get a hold of high fidelity training data sets. And if you don't have training data, you don't have a model, If you don't have a model, you're not doing machine (laughs) machine learning. Um, And one of the things that GitHub's really championed and that you do in your role, as I understand it, is open sourcing data sets publicly for public usage. Um, And I know you'll soon be releasing a new data set. Do you mind sharing a little bit about what that data set looks like and how it compares to previous GitHub data sets that have been made public?
1: Yeah, thanks for talking about that. So um, absolutely, I think one of the ways that folks can make contributions to machine learning is is to release data sets when possible. It's not something that everybody can do, but I think that's some that's something that the community is really starved for. And so um, the thing that we're going to release soon is a, a really large corpus of um, code and natural language. So it's a parallel corpus. That just means it's uh, pairs of code. Um, so code in this case, each a unit of code is a function, a function or a method. And then the, the, and then comments that are associated with the code. So specifically the unit of observation for the comments are the doc strings or the top level comments describing what that function is. So what we've done is we've used uh, uh, some, a project called tree sitter, and we've uh, parsed a um, uh, bunch of code. So uh, six different programming languages um, and sort of out of the most popular repositories from GitHub, we assembled 2 million uh, uh, pairs of these functions and doc strings uh, as a parallel corpus. And, and so we, we cleaned that, we, we uh, deduped it. So you know, we removed things that are very similar to each other did a whole bunch of things to prepare it for the community. And this data set can be used for a variety of different things. Um, You know, so the way that, so in in addition to open sourcing it, uh, we propose a task, which is, uh, can you learn a way to search the code with natural language? So given a query of some sort, can you find code that is related to that query? And so Uh, One of the tasks that might be well suited to kind of learn from this data set is can you build, can you learn a representation of code that is sort of uh, in the same space as natural language so that you can then take somebody's query, search query, and then find code that does that. Now you might be wondering, why do you need to do that? You might be really happy with your ability to search code today. You, You might think, okay, you can search. Uh, do a Google search, and you can find code very easily, um, and that's true. So the kind of search that I'm talking about is not general-purpose how-to queries like "How do you do this?" Um, you know, "How do you uh, sort something?" or "How do you find something?" That that uh, that kind of workflow is actually really good today. Um, you know, but when you're trying to do a scoped search, let's say you know some kind of code exists somewhere in a repo. Or is written by a person, or exists within a project, and you don't exactly know what the syntax is, and you don't know what what keywords. Maybe you're not using the right keywords, and it might not be comments in that code. How would you find that code? So code discoverability is really important, and so if we can make search richer, so that you can you know you can search, you can find things uh, by intent. Then that would be really interesting, and that's kind of another line of work that I've been doing for some time at github um, and the reason we're open sourcing this data set is we're hoping that the community at large can can do really creative things um, and so uh, that's kind of the motivation behind it
0: I totally hear you and I I, I hope my enthusiasm for this this project is um, I don't know it's this is this is awesome I I, I want to add that one of the data sets that I, I think, I mean, I've seen this uh, nature of problem before. Um, there was a, <laughs> a infamous uh, plugin for IDEs called Kite. Um, and I, if our audience aren't familiar, it was a tool intended, it is a tool intended to uh, type ahead or, or suggest uh, code as you type um, and they got in hot water because they were caught uh, paying off open source uh, popular open source library maintainers to include analytics into uh, their package that people were ignorantly using uh, without knowledge of opting into um, having all of their IDE behaviors tracked and uh, obviously their disclosure process was, terrible. <laughs> but I think our audience should maybe think about the the scope and ramifications of what solving the problem that Hamill is describing has, which is along the lines of what Kite was trying to do and what a lot of startups are trying to do, which is making coding really freaking easy, like natural language easy, like saying, I want a login page. And when you click login, it validates your password and your password has eight or more characters. And this this is like, not so far off and it starts with the types of challenges like Hamill's proposing so i'm pretty stoked for this crazy new future where uh, maybe people won't get repetitive stress injury anymore <laughs> because they can just narrate to github adam ide and adam will type out the code ahead of what you're saying uh, dude what a cool project um, uh, for audience that are, I mean, if I'm off base about what my forecasts oh, are. No, I'm I mean,
1: sure. no, I mean, well, that definitely is a, as a dream. I don't see that as possible, uh, you know, being able to dictate entire software programs. It definitely seems uh, beyond state of the art today. Totally. Um,
0: agreed. Agreed.
1: But, you know, there, but there could be other applications that might be interesting, such as, uh, intelligent code completion or. uh, enhanced code search, and things like that, that that might be interesting. And so uh, we know this data set is valuable. And it's already public, but it's really hard to get at yourself, you would have to clone a lot of repos, you would have to have knowledge of how to parse all of this data. Um, it actually takes a lot of elbow grease to put it in a state that's ready for analysis. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what you said, people spend 80% of their time doing Sort of the data munging. So we wanted to, to get people a little bit closer uh, to the action and provide the data set in, in a more accessible way.
0: Totally. I, what I, this might be asking too much about the roadmap of data open sourcing, but I'm curious about in the IDE space, I mean, Atom is an open source project out of GitHub and it's a IDE for writing code. Um and I do recall last time I installed it that I was prompted if I want to participate in, you know, analytics. So I'm wondering if there's uh, ever a future in which IDE behavior or behavioral data might be open source as a data set. Um with the goal towards being what I was describing, which is dictated software.
1: <laughs> yeah, my sense is so GitHub is actually really serious about data privacy. And so Anything that hasn't been very explicitly uh agreed upon that is to be public will probably never be public um and so this that's this data set that we're releasing is already public repositories um and so yeah i I mean in that sense it would have to be of that sort of caliber of uh, sort of openness for us to re even re-release it as a data set
0: understood. Uh, Understood. Yep. on On the topic of this specific data set that you guys are open sourcing um, people may be familiar with doc strings you, you gave a elegant description um, but doc strings aren't universally written by people so um, did you find as you're collecting this data set that you're only able to use a very small fraction of maybe the whole corpus of code that you would like to be able to offer in your data set since there's there's a cost to writing doc strings in the same way that there's a cost to writing any kind of documentation so uh, yeah yeah
1: no there's absolutely i mean the the dataset has a tremendous amount of noise in it um and you know there's good doc strings there's bad doc strings there's doc strings that don't make any sense and so you know we tried our best to sort of eliminate things that were very easy to identify, um, sort of, you know, th- methods or functions that don't even make sense that you would never want to search for. Um, you know. However, we kind of left a lot of this uh, noise in there because, you know, we felt that that is part of machine learning, you know, is to sort of have this noise and overcome the noise um, how you know, how do you do that? We didn't want to filter the data set too much. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to give people the opportunity to make use of this data in ways that they see fit. So I, I did mention a parallel corpus of 2 million uh, of these 2 million uh, function and codes uh, or comments. Mm-hmm. But there's also a superset of 6 million code snippets, uh, which, you know, many of them don't have any doc strings. And so, and the 2 million of those do have doc strings, that's the 2 million. So we're providing all of this data and sort of the idea that the community will figure out very interesting uh, applications of, of this.
0: Totally. Given given the posts you were describing earlier, the blog posts you made about uh, suggesting issue titles or pull request titles or labels on pull requests, I would think that... Uh, maybe simpler challenge that people might take on with the data set that's being open-sourced is uh, suggesting doc strings. Um, you, you suggest that a more interesting, or or at least the challenge you propose is uh, a semantic search of code. But I was wondering whether that's a challenge that you yourself are interested in of proposing doc strings where they may not already exist.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's, um, that's actually one of the things that we attempted be en route to the uh, this code search example. We uh, we sort of started with issue summarization, and then we immediately thought, "That's interesting. Maybe we can do code summarization." And um, we use this uh, similar data set uh, that we we're releasing to try to do that. But we realized, you know, for for doc strings in practice, you know, we could write very simple. We could the model. We could teach a model maybe how to write really simple doc strings. But the nuances of a doc string are very difficult to capture accurately. Um, you, can, you know, you could make a, a doc string look legitimate at, on the surface, but when you you know when you read uh, sort of the doc string, it kind of doesn't make sense. And that's kind of what you see with state of the art text generation today. You can you can get very coherent text generation that looks sort of at a surface to be. Uh, you know somewhat sensical but then when you read it you you kind of know that it doesn't make sense and so that's kind of what the state of nlp uh, natural language processing is at today it's, it's really hard to to generate at least large uh streams of text that are relevant to what you want to do you know predicting the next word the next character or even two words or three words might be possible but an entire doc string that that is definitely uh, very challenging
0: so a bigger a big question for you that uh invites a little controversy about what uh technology maybe people should be using for conducting machine learning is obviously the answer could be whatever works but as far as program- choice of programming language or libraries what do you what do you reach for first um in terms of approaching a problem like uh Given a CSV, what do you reach for
1: first? That's a good question. So, um, you know, so I use Python um, every day. I wouldn't necessarily advocate one thing is better than the other. Um, the reason, you know, I use Python is a lit, rich library of tools. You can argue that R has a rich library of tools as well. Um, but I, you know, find my comfort area to be in Python. And sort of my go-to tools, um, you know, they're sort of things like Scikit-learn, uh, Keras for deep learning, TensorFlow, PyTorch. I really enjoy the fast AI library. I think it's excellent. Um, and also I like, to, I like to do something a little bit different than a lot of data scientists. I like to use auto, AutoML, so automated machine learning Ah, uh, the things like DataRobot to benchmark my my problems and give and start with a very strong baseline. So I think when you're working on a machine learning problem, you want to you want to establish some baseline. So the most naive baseline is what does random guessing look like, and you want to at least you want to know what that is. But then beyond that, you want to know, okay, if I train a really simple model without you know trying to tune too many things. You know, what does that look like? And then you you force yourself to justify increases in complexity. So um the way I like to use automated machine learning like data robot and other solutions is just to give me a solid baselines and diagnostics so that when I start doing my tasks, I am starting with a lot of information about what's working, how good like the base how good the baseline is. And sort of when I build a model, I know how I compare at least.
0: I, one, of the, one of the common um, issues that I think uh, data scientists face is justifying how much time they spend, like you say, or added complexity uh, in trying to beat the baseline and that there, there might be very diminishing returns to trying to improve beyond the baseline. Uh, depending on the type of problem uh, or just how good or bad the baseline is. Um, but how often would you say that machine learning problems are are solved at the AutoML level, like no, no additional further iterations needed beyond what AutoML might be able to model?
1: So I think AutoML auto- automates the parts that frankly I really don't want to do and I don't. So I think the typical data scientist spends all of their time Uh, 98% of the time not doing modeling. We're spending our time getting data, talking to folks, understanding the problem, uh, cleaning the data, and and then sort of putting in production um, and doing all the engineering. And I think, you know, a world where you tune different parameters by hand and you sort of fiddle with uh, architectures, you know, that's something that, I mean, I, I actually don't think is that enjoyable. Um, and that's something that's very amenable to automation to a large degree. And and so I, I see that diminishing more and more. It is good to be able to tweak that, but in practical use cases, um, a lot of times where you're struggling with time, um, you, you know, if you, you don't have that much time to spend on that. and And frankly, a working solution is good enough. Uh, something that, you know, uh, you just want to have something that is good enough for y- your first product. Um, and I think you don't, the time where you want not spend a lot of time beating the baseline is when you have a stable, mature product um, already in production and you want to kind of squeeze more out of it. And, uh, you know... You may or may not encounter that as a data scientist, depending on your role.
0: Speaking speaking of performance, and dialing back to our earlier topic about DevOps, one of the hot topics I know with machine learning today is about deploying models, not necessarily to cloud servers, but to devices, to mobile devices like smartphones, and running the models on client. Uh, are there any novel uh, DevOps issues for machine learning that are becoming more uh, well-known or, or solutions that are becoming more popular for dealing with that specific use case of deploying machine learning models to mobile?
1: I actually don't have that much experience to be honest with you with uh, deploying machine learning to mobile. So I, I don't really know about that. Um, I know that this is a very significant problem And actually, there's a there's a framework that I saw released a couple of weeks ago by uh, Apple, um, a core ML framework where they sort of have auto ML where they push it. They can push a model directly to uh, mobile. Um, But other than that, I mean, I I actually don't know. I haven't dealt with that use case, to be honest.
0: Totally fair. Totally fair. I mean. I, I also have not worked a great deal with mobile, but uh, I imagine the constraints to, to be dealt with there are very novel <laughs> and probably really hard, depending on if you're trying to you know release to both Android to iOS to XYZ, other uh, target platform. But uh,
1: Yeah, the way that I see the, the a really popular paradigm um, where, uh, that people are using to deploy machine learning right now is sort of the microservice paradigm. Where you deploy your model as an API endpoint, and uh, sort of your other applications talk to that, uh, even your mobile applications. However, like you were alluding to, a lot of times you know it might not be feasible to have that pattern, uh, and a lot of times you need that to happen on your device for various privacy reasons or other reasons. Um, and so, yeah, I think you know that's not something I've experienced with like kind of the uh, edge computing quote. Uh, sort of paradigm
0: totally totally any any parting thoughts or uh, re- recommendations maybe for our audience that are first getting into machine learning or might dabble their toes in machine learning with the newly open source data set
1: Yeah um, I would say out of all the courses and tutorials that I've done and my time in machine learning the one that I really enjoyed the most is um, the fast AI tutorials with Jeremy Howard. And the reason I like that, I like those tutorials is um, because it really teaches a good mindset of how to approach learning. It really um, is a convincing expose of you don't need advanced training to be good at machine learning. It teaches you that by very much by example. I think that's really powerful. And it's actually really powerful in, uh, if you're in technology at all to, to kind of witness and see that. So um, I would highly recommend checking that out.
0: For sure. We'll include a link in the show notes. We'll include a link uh, if you want to get a, of, get a hold of Hamel on LinkedIn or Twitter. We'll include links there in the show notes. Uh, thanks for coming on, Hamill. It's been awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.